This morning's scripture is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Thank you, Leslie. Well, as you may have guessed already, I get to preach this morning. <laughs> I'm David Buving. I'm the youth and worship director here at Bethany Church, and uh, Jeff is at a wedding this weekend, so I get the honor of preaching. Some people suggested I stand in the shade but I thought I'll stand here and it'll keep me from getting long-winded, so you're welcome. <laughs> Growing up, I lived in a two-story house right in the middle of a small town in Northern California. Uh, it's so hot there that this morning would probably feel like a crisp spring day in comparison. I think they're supposed to hit 110 today. So, The, the house was surrounded by a huge lot, plenty of grass and trees, a great place to grow up. And in the basement, we had a few bedrooms, and then my dad's office in the front that I think was divided from the rest of the basement by just plywood wall. Um, and it was a fairly normal office, uh, you know, desk, bookcases, things like that. But there was near the front door kind of a strange thing. He had a barometer hanging on his wall. Uh, <laughs> not something that I've really ever seen since, to be honest with you. If you don't know what a barometer is, it measures atmospheric pressure. I never quite figured out how to use it, and to be honest, I'm not sure he did, but you can ask him after the service <laughs> and see what he says. But for many years, barometers are one of the primary means by which they would predict changes in the weather. When atmospheric pressure changes, the weather will change, and so depending on if it goes up or down or how much or how quickly, um, someone who knows what they're doing is able to predict the coming rain or wind, snow, things like that. You can't really feel atmospheric pressure when you're just outside. You can't see it with your eyes. But when you have that barometer, you're able to see what's actually happening in the weather before it happens. You can see what's going on under the surface. The Beatitudes are kind of like that for us. The existence or the absence of, the of any one of these Beatitudes in your life is an indication of something that's going on beneath the surface, what's going on in your heart. They point us to the question of if we have new life in Jesus. And I know we've talked about this before in this series already, but I'm starting here again because I think this particular beatitude 
maybe more than any of the others, has been misunderstood and misused, misinterpreted. Too often people have read this particular beatitude as a statement of, if I'm merciful, God's going to be merciful to me. If I'm an easygoing sort of person, then God will forgive me. But this completely ignores the context and the point of the Beatitudes as a whole. If we, re, if we uh, fail to recognize the, the purpose of these Beatitudes, it's going to lead us to legalism. It, it destroys the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. And, and if we're honest with ourselves, it, it should really fill our hearts with fear because none of us is near as merciful as God. And if you think you are, you're lying to yourself. Central to the gospel is this idea that we are new people. Not just that we try to be different, but that through the work of the Holy Spirit, we are transformed into a new kind of person. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Or in Ephesians 2.10, we read, For we are Christ's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared for us beforehand that we should walk in them. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, the calling in the New Testament is never a calling to be better than who you are. The calling in the New Testament is to be who you are. You are a new person. You have been transformed by the Spirit. And so the call in the New Testament is, go ahead and live like the new person that you are. Our actions always proceed from who we are in Christ. And so as we come to this verse today, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We have in front of us a description of a person who is in Christ, not a commandment to try to be a better person. Our salvation, the mercy that we receive from God, is not dependent on our actions, but rather the mercy we receive from God not only provides us forgiveness, but it actually produces transformation in our lives. These beatitudes are not a checklist of actions for you to accomplish, but a mirror by which you can examine if you are newly if you are truly a new creature. It's a portrait of a subject of the kingdom of God. And so the question you have to ask yourself this morning is this: Is this description an accurate description of me? Has God's mercy so radically changed me? that now I have a deep desire to be merciful towards those around me. And if you hear that and your answer is yes, then this passage is a great comfort, another assurance that you have been made new in Christ. But if you don't feel mercy and you don't have a desire to be merciful, then you have to ask yourself the question, am I really a subject in his kingdom? Have I actually experienced God's mercy? Jesus is saying that the reality is that those who are in his kingdom, he says, those who have experienced his mercy will be merciful people. That those people who have experienced his mercy will be merciful people. 
And this morning is going to just be really practical. It's going to be a lot of explaining and describing what mercy is, and here's why. Um, as I read the passage, or not even read it, but just knew what the verse was, and so when it mentioned to me what, what passage I was going to be speaking on, my initial thought was this is probably the most vanilla of all the Beatitudes. Certainly anyone who claims to follow Jesus has to understand that they, are merci- that they have to be merciful. Like, if you don't get that, like, that's crazy, right? And to be honest, in that thought process, I thought and even said, like, I'm pretty good at being merciful. This isn't an area that I struggle in. You want to go back to those other Beatitudes, being meek, poor in spirit, hungering, thirsting for righteousness. Yeah, maybe I struggle with those more, but this mercy thing, I understand it and I've got it in the bag. And as I started reading and praying, God really ripped my heart open and showed me once again my self-righteousness and how weak and poor I am on my own. One commentator I read said something to the effect of the call to be merciful is not a call to be an easygoing, flabby type of person. (laughs) I was both disappointed and somewhat offended. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I don't like being described as flabby, but if the shoe fits... But he's right. Mercy is so much more than just being easygoing. And being merciful is not simply something that comes natural to us. It's a supernatural attribute. Just like the rest of the Beatitudes, being merciful is something that comes from God's Spirit's work in your life. It's a supernatural attribute that's possessed by the subjects of the kingdom of God, not merely something that we will ourselves to do. I need him to make me merciful. And then part of that process is truly understanding what mercy means. With all that said, let's dive in. Let's go ahead and pull out your outlines. Uh, we got three points in there, so if you're ready, let's do it. Look at the three ways that Jesus' call to mercy is to be understood. The first is this. The call to mercy is a call for undeserved forgiveness towards those who have wronged you. The call to mercy is a call for undeserved forgiveness towards those who have wronged you. When Caitlin and I first got married, we used to argue from time to time. Just kidding. We still still argue. (laughs) But early in our marriage, we had a, a common misunderstanding in how we processed our arguments. If we were arguing and we didn't quickly come to a resolution... We'd give ourselves a little space and time to, to work through our, our mental process, think through what was going on so that we could come back together and apologize or, or work through the issue more. And, and in those times, my favorite acti- activity was always to go out back and to chop wood. I loved it because it, it was physical and it, it forced me to breathe deep. It was, it was just a calming thing for me. And that might seem strange, but it helped me to, to think through my own defensiveness and, and tear it apart. It helped me to recognize my mistakes, my own stupidity. And usually it worked fairly quickly. I'd realize the ways in which I had been wrong in our argument, and so I would go back inside and I would apologize. But for some reason, again and again, when I came back inside, it seemed like Caitlin was more frustrated, <laughs> and, and my apology didn't seem to do much good. And it took quite a few arguments for us to figure out what was going on. See, every time I went outside to chop wood, she thought I was going out there and essentially imagining that her head was on the chopping block. (laughs) 
And as I <laughs> processed that, then I was good. We could, <laughs> yeah. So she didn't really care for my apology if she thought I had just been imagining that I was murdering her. Imagine that. <laughs> Once we worked through that uh, and understood each other better, our arguments went better. My seeking forgiveness was greatly improved. Forgiveness is a, is a tricky topic, isn't it? All of us have some kind of baggage around it. But it's one of the central ideas that we find in mercy. But mercy goes beyond simply forgiving those who seek forgiveness. It really goes beyond forgiving those who deserve forgiveness. And Jesus' call here is that we would forgive anyone who wrongs us. Even if the world says that you have a right to hold on to your grudge. Just a few verses further in this same section in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, You have heard that it is said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? The call to mercy isn't a call to simply be an easygoing person. Mercy's hard work. And, and honestly, it's, it's not an attribute that our world finds acceptable in the way that Jesus commands us to do it. And as Christians, too often, I think we get sucked into the pattern that the world is putting out for us. We forget that we're no longer living according to this world, but that we are new creations. The world says that if something, someone has done wrong, that they have to pay for it. That if someone offends you, that it's your right to cause them as much pain as possible in return. But Jesus says, my people will be merciful. They'll pray for their enemies because they understand that it is only because of God's mercy that they are saved. Mercy like that means that we actually absorb the debt that the other person owes us. No longer holding it against them. And this is the description of God's mercy. In Ephesians 2, Paul describes all humans like this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, whom, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's not a nice picture that he paints. It's not a pretty picture. And he makes a special point to include you just in case you thought you were special. He says, you are not. <laughs> you were this same way. But he goes on and he says, or he, sorry, he speaks of the beauty of the gospel, reveals the source of our even ability to be merciful and forgiving people. He continues and says this, 
but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even while we were dead in our trespasses, he's saying even while we were completely lost, enemies of Christ, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. I do not have mercy and forgiveness. If I, sorry, I do not deserve the mercy and forgiveness of God. And, and until you grasp this and actually believe it, that you don't deserve his mercy, it's going to be hard to be a merciful person. You do not deserve the mercy and the forgiveness of God, and yet he gave it to you freely, though it cost him much. So what does forgiveness look like in the life of the believer? First, uh, let's talk about a couple things that forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not simply being an easygoing or flabby person, as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones called it. Forgiveness is not simply saying no problem when somebody does something wrong. I read a quote this week that I think perfectly captures the weightiness of forgiveness that we often miss. This author said, I, I asked a few people if they'd ever forgiven anyone and what it felt like. They gave me answers so pious that I knew that they had never done it. Forgiveness is a brutal mathematical transaction done with fully engaged faculties. It is my pain instead of yours. I eat the debt. I absorb the misery that I want to dish out on you, and you go scot-free. Forgiveness isn't simply letting it slide, but instead it is acknowledging the wrong that has been done and saying, I no longer hold this over your head. I will no longer seek vengeance for your sins against me. I release you of the debt that you owe me. Part of what Jesus is saying here is that Christians don't hold grudges, not even neatly disguised grudges. We release people from the debt that they owe us. But we have to be clear here that forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. Just because you forgive someone does not mean that trust is instantly restored and you place yourself directly back into the situation. Reconciliation is an incredibly important goal when possible. But there really are times where we need to forgive and refuse to hold a grudge, and even as we do that, rightfully not place ourselves back into harm's way. I really struggled as I worked on my sermon how to communicate this, because unfortunately I've, I've seen people in the name of forgiveness place themselves back into abusive situations that they should not have, and I've also seen people that in the name of being careful and protecting themselves, ending relationships that weren't abusive that needed to be restored. The reality is that I can't sit up here and give you a list of what offenses should terminate a relationship and which ones need you to seek relation, uh, reconciliation. Uh, but I think this is one of the reasons that the church is so important. These are nuanced issues. And in the gray areas, we can't lay out a black and white plan. But it should always be dealt with by seeking wisdom in the community of believers. And I want to warn, even as I say that, that it's important that we speak with people who are wiser and unbiased. I say this regularly to our teens, but I think it applies to us as adults as well. If you know the person that you're going to talk to is just going to validate what you already feel, 
that probably isn't the right person to talk to. Seek out your small groups, your pastor, or even a counselor when you're not sure how to respond to a certain event, uh, offense. But the reality of mercy here is that regardless of how you proceed in the relationship, if you are a subject of the kingdom of God, we will act merciful by providing forgiveness for the offenses that have been taken. We refuse to hold grudges, not even secret ones. We refuse to gossip, not even in the name of prayer. Followers of Jesus follow the lead of their Savior by releasing their right to vengeance. But mercy goes beyond radical forgiveness. It says more than simply, I won't hold against you the wrong that you did to me. Rather, the call to mercy is also a call for unconditional compassion towards a hurting world. The call to mercy is a call for unconditional compassion towards a hurting world. I think this is an element of mercy that we really all struggle with. Because here mercy says, I know that your pain may be your own fault. But rather than holding it over your head, I'm going to seek to bring healing into your life. Mercy says, I know that your life has been destroyed because of the sin that you have chosen. But rather than saying you got what you deserved, I'll go out of my way to absorb your pain. This just isn't naturally the way we think. An interesting example I read this week is that the early church actually had a practice in which they would regularly fast for two or three days at a time, collect the food that they would have eaten, and then take that food and give it to people who are in need. Mercy goes beyond simple charity and actually makes another, person pain, another person's pain our own. I love the new kids song that we've been doing, Two Shirts. Um, but I've been growing increasingly uncomfortable with it <laughs> for, for the past week or two. And, and not because of anything wrong in the song. The words are straight from scripture. But because I, I wonder if as I sing these words, I actually mean them. Or if I just think they're cute and nice. I mean, <laughs> anyone who has two shirts should give to one who has none. Anyone with food should do the same. Uh, the words are, are challenging. It's not a call for us to give out of our excess or to only share with those who have lived in a wise manner and who have got their lives together. It's a call to be radically generous, even if it hurts us sometimes. Throughout Jesus' ministry on earth, he showed mercy and compassion, not only those are not based on who deserved it. It was based on who needed it. And we really like that idea when it comes to Jesus. But it's hard if we take it seriously for ourselves. How often do we really reflect our Savior in this way? I think of all the current events going on right now. You don't have to look far to see a world that's filled with pain and suffering. It's all around us. 
And if we're honest, which we should be, much of that pain and suffering is caused by lives that are filled with sin. Even before the pandemic hit and stuff and, uh, and all the other things that are going on, suicide and depression were at all-time highs, like historic rates. Happiness was at all-time lows. We live in a world that says you can be whoever you want to be. And, and that sounds really great, but ultimately it leaves people hopeless because they have no clue who they are. But God does know who they are. They're his creation, made in his image, that they might glorify him. My warning here is that too often our reaction is to mock, shame, and spew hate at people who are floundering because they refuse to accept what God says they are. We get defensive because even as they are struggling and floundering, uh, they might be aggressive, but that's not mercy. An old hymn, which I really like, has words that I think act as a, a perfect rebuke for us as we struggle to feel mercy for people who are suffering because of their sin. It says, Did Christ over sinners weep, and shall our cheeks be dry? Let floods of penitential grief burst forth from every eye. And then the second verse goes on and says this, He wept that we might weep, might weep over sin and shame. He wept to show his love for us and bid us love the same. Brothers and sisters, we cannot have nasty attitudes towards the world. It's simply not part of being a Christian. Hate has no place in the heart or the mouth or the thumbs of a follower of Christ. Jesus' call to mercy is a reminder for us that we would watch our tongues and our attitudes and our disposition towards people who are even hateful towards us would be one of sorrow and one that seeks to restore always. Mercy means we don't get to write people off. We don't get to be nasty. Mercy means we don't get to draw up political lines and spew hatred at the enemy. Regardless of your ideology or how you believe problems should be solved, mercy means that we go out of our way to help hurting people. But, it, but as difficult as this call to mercy is, it isn't unprecedented. The call to mercy is a call to reflect your king. The call to mercy is a call to reflect your king. Jesus doesn't define his people by attributes that he didn't possess. He doesn't command a life that he wasn't willing to live. The very life we have is by the mercy of God. And, and the spiritual life that we have, the hope of eternity, is by the mercy of God. I think we struggle to believe that sometimes. We think that we're a lot better than we are. 
least I do. Maybe maybe you guys have that all figured out. But again and again through Jesus's ministry, he went out of his way to show compassion and mercy to everyone he came in contact with. You see him as you read through the gospels defiling himself to heal people who were unclean and and that doesn't pack a lot of punch for us cuz we don't think that way, but for a Jewish rabbi, it was an incredible sacrifice. We see him give up his own rest, his own comfort, because he looks out at the crowds and has compassion. And they're lost. They don't know what's going on. They're like sheep without a shepherd, he says. And so he gives out of his own margins for them. After experiencing a mock trial, followed by hours of torture, being beaten by whips that literally had chunks of bone and lead in the end, as to tear his back apart. He was forced to carry his own cross, a heavy beam of unfinished wood that would have only torn up his back more. And upon arrival at the site of his crucifixion, he was nailed to the wood, lifted in the air to slowly die by suffocation. And as he hung there, He looked down on those who had crucified him, pulled himself up so that he could take a breath to speak, which would have been excruciatingly painful, and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We serve a merciful king. Our call to mercy is a call to reflect that. So this morning, if if mercy doesn't flow from your life, it means one of two things. Either you have never experienced or understood God's mercy towards you, never believed it, or you've become distracted by the world because the world is really loud. My encouragement is that if this morning pulls at your conscience and reminds you of the undeserved grace you've received in God and reminds you of your need to be merciful, I think if that's going on in your heart, that that's a sign that you've become distracted by this world. And the beautiful thing is this. The, the gospel doesn't say try harder and maybe God will love you. Try harder. Maybe you can get it right. Instead, it says this, you are incredibly loved by God. Now, go live like it. You have been radically changed. Live like it. You're a new creation. Now live like it. If you struggle to be merciful, most of us do in some area, but you have that desire in you to be merciful, then pray. Pray that God would ignite your heart with mercy for those around you. Don't just, don't just dig in your heels and be like, okay, I can, I can control what I say this time, or I can control this situation, or I can, uh, I can, you know, whatever. I can will myself to do something. Start by praying that God would ignite your heart with mercy. Pray that he would continue to change you, that he would reveal your wrong attitudes and that he would help to correct them, that he would reveal the idols in your life that, need to be 
destroyed. And then my encouragement is that Paul says this, I'm sure that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Christ Jesus, that the Holy Spirit is still working in you. We need not be hopeless. But if this morning you don't feel that mercy, if it doesn't have a place in your life at all, maybe it doesn't even sound like a good idea, then I would encourage you to ask yourself the question, am I really a follower of Jesus? Am I a subject of his kingdom? And, and even if you have gone to church your whole life, the answer to that question might be no, because doing Christian things doesn't make you a Christian. But being a Christian will change the way that you live. God offers mercy that cannot be earned, and regardless of the guilt or shame that you might feel, he's inviting you to know him. And he s desires to forgive you in that radical way where he says, I see you're wrong. I acknowledge it. I'm not ignoring it. And I am taking it upon myself. I absorb your debt. I'm not just looking the other way. I absorb your debt. And you're forgiven. And if you want to know that mercy, that sense of forgiveness, and that, that, that life transformed by the Holy Spirit, I encourage you to talk to someone after the service about this. Talk to me. Talk to one of our elders. I know they're around here somewhere. One of our deacons. There's a lot of really great people here who would love to pray with you, who would love to help you to become a subject in Jesus' kingdom. Let me pray. Father, we rejoice in the mercy that you have shown us. We are so thankful that by your grace we have been saved. And God, we thank you that it is not left up to what we do because we fail. But we have confidence that you have made us new. So God, I pray for each and every person here today that as they live, as they leave today, they would live like the new creatures that they are. That they would live as people transformed by you. God, help us not to get distracted by this world. It can be so noisy and so scary. us to fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. God, I pray that you would continue to conform us to the image of your son, that we might be more and more like him. In Jesus' name, amen.